Welcome to Secret Sauce for Success, show number five. Hi, everybody. You have tuned in to the Secret Sauce for Success show, where we strive to find the secret ingredients that lead to success. We interview successful guests every week and learn their secret to their success. We sincerely hope you implement these habits into your life and become the best you that you can be. Enjoy the show. What's going on, everybody? It's Rick Stahl, host of the Secret Sauce for Success show, live from Colorado, here with my co-host, Doug Kirstein. What's going on, Doug? We got a lot. Rick, what's happening with you, man? It's good to see you tonight. Ah, yeah, it's good to see you, too. Hey, have you been following the the stock market news with the short squeezes that Reddit has been pulling off? Yeah, isn't that interesting? I wonder, um, wonder what got into them to decide to do that kind of thing today. The uh, hedge funds have been doing this kind of thing for a long time, selling stocks short and playing the market a little bit and driving the price down and buying it back cheaper. So I don't know what drove it this time. Yeah, thank just a bunch of people got together on Reddit and decided to try to take down a, a big one and and it seems like they're pretty successful. Yeah. Yeah. I think the hedge funds lost a lot of money today. It's not you can say very often. Yeah. Yeah, my analogy was uh like a bunch of piranha taking down a elephant or whatever that falls in the you know, the river. That's right. A little David and Goliath action going on there today. Yeah. A lot of little Davids and a couple of big Goliaths. So, yeah, it was an interesting story. I, I was following that a little bit, but I had a pretty busy day, so I wasn't able to listen in. But saw a few news reports on it, and uh, it's interesting when they talk about this stuff on the news to listen to it, when you kind of know what they're talking about, to hear some of the gaps and what they're explaining. So I wonder how many people were confused about that just based on some of the, some of the uh, I think, inconsistencies that I heard. Were you able to follow along on that? Did you get everything out of it? Oh, you know, I actually uh, made a little money today. We I had a little bit of silver, and, uh, and silver, I think, was on the wings of this thing, so I was kind of interested. Uh, and just watching, you know, the the price and reading about it a little bit. But, yeah, it's kind of interesting, The you know, the whole short squeeze thing. Yeah. Yeah, you don't hear about a short squeeze very often. There's a lot of short selling that goes on, and 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 uh, anticipation of a bull or rather of a bear market. But yeah, the short squeeze was interesting. That's a, something that doesn't come up very often. So uh, it's kind of fun to see that when it happens. Right. <laughs> yeah, it's like you know the the people shorting it, you know, are expecting it to go down, so they actually sell the stock first, and then when these people come in and drive the price up. And these people are getting scared because they're losing money because it's going higher instead of lower. They have to actually complete the transaction and buy the stock, which drives the price up higher. So you get to double the action. Right. Right. All right, Doug. Uh, what do you got for a quote of the week? Oh, boy. You know what, Rick? I think that uh, one of my favorite quotes from money of all time comes from Sam Langhorn Clemens, otherwise known, of course, as Mark Twain, right? We always, we like to say that uh, the love of money is the root of all evil, but uh, he actually said, I think this is much more true, that the lack of money is the root of all evil. And I think being, you know, people who are searching for money and don't have any money, they're more driven to do some, some things that are a little underhanded. So I like that. I think that's a, a good quote and uh, one that 
probably is very true. Yeah, because if you don't have it, it sure is painful. The money is good, right? I mean, it's just a tool and how you use it. So it's just a vehicle. And if you treat it that way, it's, you know, it kind of keeps everything in check. Yeah. Yeah. I once knew a very successful man who said, I don't love money. I love choices and money gives me choices. Right. That's probably pretty accurate. I mean, I know a lot of people who are in love with their money, but it's like, if you have a million dollars and you drive a super old car and live in a tiny house and don't go out to eat, what, what good is your money? Right. Right. Give, give some to your neighbor anyway. I mean, geez. Yeah, it got to be. And speaking of money, speaking of finances, so tonight we get to interview, I get to interview Doug Kirstein, our financial expert here on Secret Sauce for Success Show. So lucky you. So yeah, lucky me. So can you tell us a little bit about your background, first of all? Were you born in Colorado? What's, what's, how did you get your start? Yeah, born and raised. I think I'm one of like eight people in the state who uh, were raised here, born and raised here. <laughs> it's a uh, growing place for sure. Um, yeah, I grew up in the Denver area and uh, have been here all my life. I love Denver, love the mountains, and met my wife here, and, and we now live here with our two sons. So uh, it has been a good city for me, a lot of friends, a lot of other good things going on here. So, yeah. so how did you decide to even get into finances? Is this something you're – parents instilled in you or or what no i've always had kind of a drive to to earn money and to make money i started working my first job i was 13 years old and uh golf course and we uh i drove the cart to pick up the golf balls and i did a little bit of work here and there and moved carts around for people and worked as a starter a little bit and uh you know when you're when you're 13 years old and you, you got 70 bucks in your pocket, you just will be, you know, you're like, like Bill Gates, right? Jeff Bezos. I mean, it's the man in the world. I care. <laughs> money and cash in my pocket. It was great. And that, I think that just sort of, I always had the desire to, to work and to be productive. As I've gotten older, that desire has manifested itself in a lot of different ways, not just professionally, but also I have a lot of hobbies and a lot of interests that I have pursued. Uh, in my life here, but I think at 13 working, it was great. I had some money. I saved it up. I was able to buy a car. I was able to pay for some school, uh, all that kind of thing. And uh, I remember I must've been probably 13 or 14 years old talking to my parents and saying, Hey, I want to invest some money. And uh, my dad took me over to our bank and I remember sitting with the investment guy over there. And I only can remember not understanding a word that he said. (laughs) Also didn't know anything about finance. My dad was an engineer as well, uh, and he was not a finance guy. I mean, an excellent engineer could tell you how, could look at something and tell you how it worked in three different ways to build it and that sort of thing, but, but uh, nothing about finance. So uh, I kind of got the itch and, and started reading about things. I bought my first book on stocks. I think I was 15 years old when I bought wow. that. Wow. Yeah. And, uh, didn't understand most of that either. So, you know, it kind of reminds me of a Simpsons episode where Homer's decided he's going to go back to school and, and get really smart and educated. And he's reading these textbooks and then it, he's sitting in bed reading textbooks and then it goes to some other scene and then it comes back and he's sitting in bed reading a dictionary. <laughs> 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 
that was me. I mean, I, I, I what is this stuff? I'm reading this. I get this chapter. I'm underlining things and I'm going back and reading it and thinking, man, is this book meant for beginners or do I have to be, you know, have a college degree in order to understand it? So this kept my thirst for knowledge and understanding just kind of kept with me. Although uh, for the most part, as I got older, my interests changed a little bit. And like most people, I wanted to buy a car and I wanted to take girls out to movies and, you know, all of those sorts of things that you do when you're a teenager. Uh, and uh, then I got into college and, and my brother uh, gave me what was supposed to be some good advice and turned out to be advice that sent me down a lot of rabbit holes. And that's you take classes that sound interesting you if you don't know what you want to do find something that sounds interesting take it but for me everything's interesting i want to know how accounting works and i want to know how to do calculus and i want to know something about the economy and biology and chemistry and i've got i mean i have three undergraduate degrees part of a master's degree and i spent seven and a half years in undergraduate school uh, working my way through and one of the things that I, economics is what i knew i really wanted to do but i started taking finance classes as well and that was really interesting so i kept with it and ended up um, with a degree in finance degree in economics and a degree in information systems so you know i used to be able to to program and write code in html and uh, i built relational databases and design networks and all that sort of thing but i actually hate computers and so i don't do anything with that anymore <laughs> as much as i can but i think as we've been interviewing uh different guests some of the strengths that they find in one area kind of overlays into another so i wonder since you're you're so inquisitive here and curious about different things uh you know like finance and uh the information systems and uh what was the other one? Economic? Economics. Economics. Yeah. So I wonder if that all just kind of helps mold you, you know, in a good way, right? The more you know, the I hope so, more you know. Right, exactly. I mean, I can talk to anybody at a party, but I'm not sure if it's helped me any more than that, you know? <laughs> all right. So you, you finally get out of college and with with three degrees. Wow. Okay. And what did, what did, where'd you go? What'd you do? I got my first job uh, working at Charles Schwab. And that was an interesting, that was an interesting experience. I, I would say eye opening, but I think at that point I'd been around as an adult and working in that for long enough that, that I kind of saw how the world worked a little bit. But it was interesting to talk to different people from different places and, and that, that and just get different viewpoints on things. And we all have our own opinions about how the world works, right, and about how things happen. And economics is an especially interesting area where that's concerned because two people can look at um, some sort of a rule or a law or a piece of legislation or uh, just a, a general group of people doing something and say that's going to lead to X, Y, and Z. And X, Y, and Z is different for each of those two people depending upon how they really view the world, Right. So right. uh, economics was great because I always say that economics really taught me how to think about things, not just what to think. So to analyze and say, what what's happening with this piece of information here? What are these people doing? Or if the president of the United States does this, what can we expect that to do? Right? Or what can we expect that, what, good Lord, what kind of an impact, excuse me, can we expect that to have on the economy and job growth on 
on uh, you know foreign relations with other countries or whatever the case might be. And there's just a ton of things that 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 a person can go after with that. But economics really taught me how to think about what the implications of things would be, not just some little linear A leads to B leads to C. It's a, it, it's much more complicated than that. So what did you do at Charles Schwab? I, oh, I became a broker. Excuse me, I forgot your question. I got into economics. Economics is kind of my little rabbit hole thing. If you ask me about that, I could go on for hours. So if I get off on some sort of tangent, <laughs> that's probably why. <laughs> um, but no, at, at Schwab, I got my Series 7, which is a securities trading license. Uh, and uh, it is one of two common licenses, the 7 and the 6 is the other one. The 6 is sort of a truncated version. Um, the 7 adds say options trading, individual equities and individual bonds, that sort of thing to uh, what's otherwise sort of the legal framework that securities acts of 39 and 40, uh, and then some general like uh, variable contract information. So it, it's a, a broad based license that allows you to sell securities. So I was a broker and I traded for them. I traded options, I traded stocks and bonds. And I did that for about a year and a half before I left. And, when, and can, uh, excuse me for a second. So, you say you traded, right? So I follow the stock market and I can do stocks and, you know, shorts and options, right? But I'm not licensed. So why do you need to be licensed? Well, because I traded them on behalf of others. Uh, I was the broker. I was the guy. So you can, you can get like a, you know, a TD Ameritrade account or whatever it is, right? Just to throw a name out there. Or even, since we're talking about I'm a Charles Schwab account, and go on, put your money in there and make decisions as to what you want to buy. You have every right to do that. But if you, as a, just a, a lay person, want to call into a company like Charles Schwab and ask that person for some guidance and have them help you, they must be licensed to do so. Ah, okay. So you did this for a year and a half? Did, a year and a half, yeah. Did you enjoy it? What, 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 what were some of the nice things that you liked about it? Well, I liked, I liked the subject matter and I liked watching the markets and being immersed in that world every day. It was really interesting. What I didn't like necessarily was the, the, uh, call center environment. It's really not for everybody. Uh, and I am much more of a people person. I much more enjoy being out with people and looking somebody in the eye, being face to face with them and building that relationship. Uh, as a, as a broker at a call center, you're a transactional guy. Somebody calls you up and says, sell my securities or sell my shares of ABC stock. And, you know, at the market, and you just go, you sell it and you say, okay, it's done. And here's your confirmation and go on to the next guy. But I prefer the more human side of, of planning and advisory services. And that. Very good. So after you made your first million in the year and a half and yeah. went off, <laughs> what did you do next? Let's see. Next, I uh, got a job up at a at Bank One, and I worked there. I got my insurance license working there, uh, and uh, so then I had a securities license and an insurance license. We sold some uh, some annuity types of products through uh, the bank uh, and uh, the brokerage part of the bank there, and so I got that license, and I was able to use my securities license and my uh, and now my newly received or newly earned insurance license and that was kind of fun i enjoyed that but i only did that for about a year i was tired of working and i worked in a branch at an albertson store and uh i don't know if you've ever tried to sell stocks it's not the easiest thing to do and if you've ever tried to sell stocks at a grocery store uh you know that's really not an easy thing to do yeah yeah i suppose 
but we had some fun with it. You know, we one of the pro, uh, promos that we ran while we were there is what's going to be the cost of groceries in say ten years. So we went out in the in the store and we picked up two or three things that were not perishable, like you know rolls of toilet paper and some well, whatever else. I don't even know magazine or whatever it was. And then we said, based on a three percent rate of of, of uh, inflation, what's this going to look like in ten years? And, and man, people lined up to to put their guesses in because we had I don't know what it was. $25 gift card or something like that for people. Uh, at any rate, it was, uh, it was, it was a pretty fun thing to do. We did a lot of that sort of thing to, to get people involved. So yeah, it was fun. And we definitely had a lot of foot traffic because of the fact that it was a, you know, a place where people needed to go. Right. Uh, yeah. That's kind of neat. A good place to get you your start here. All right. And after bank one, where'd you go? Then I went out on my own. So even before starting at Charles Schwab, I became a, a mortgage broker in 1997, and I got my job at Charles Schwab in 2000. So for three years, I was an independent mortgage broker. Uh, I tell you, I went from having irregular jobs and all that sort of thing to being in my first commission job, and it was entirely commission-based. I didn't have any salary or anything like that, and uh, that was an interesting experience. So uh, there were some elements to that that were uh, undesirable let's just say. And there were people with whom I had worked who definitely embodied that, uh, that saying that everybody can teach you something, even if it's not how, even if it's how not to do something, right. Or how not to do things. Right. So I learned a lot of, learned how to steer clear of a lot of negative things by being in that business. Uh, And especially, you know, with the, uh, with the folks I was working with. So um, anyway, after, after uh, being at Bank One, I hooked up with another fellow who was part of that same company and pulled away. And he and I worked together for a short time. And I, I uh, had a, an advisory business and a mortgage business and uh, did that for a while until 2000. 2000- oh, can, can you stop right there? So you and a buddy did the mortgage broker. Uh, do you have to have like an LLC for that? No. And at the time, basically all you had to do was just declare so that someone could hear you that you were a mortgage broker and you were a mortgage broker. There was no licensing. There was no requirement for education or understanding or even, you know, general level of intelligence when it came to the kind of work that we were doing. There were a lot of people. It was a transient business. It was, it was really difficult to, to be a part of it because you'd come across people who had been really burned by people who didn't know what they were doing. So, you know, you had to, the normal part of the business, but then you also had that sort of underbelly piece that you had to deal with. And it was, it was not so great when they started licensing people, which is after I got out of the, out of the business, uh, a lot of that went away and it was, um, it was a much, I think better place to do business. And people I know who are in the business today are, I think happier as a result of it. Okay. And then what was your next job? So I did that for, uh, until 2006, and uh, my wife came to me. It was about 2000, actually 2005, and my wife came to me and told me she was pregnant with our first baby. Wow. So uh, I thought, you know, I've been fairly successful, and I've been having some fun and living a kind of a good lifestyle here, but I think it's time for me to grow up a little bit and, and get a regular job. So I went over to TIA Cref. I got a job there, and I was a, a sales uh, sales representative for them, I worked in what they called their outbound sales department. And that was, uh, I, I was paired with inbound teams. TIA Craft was, was, and I think still is, a largely a phone-based organization. And uh, so we worked in a call center, that's what they had here in, in Denver. 
most of the people who are in the field were in small regional offices or small offices in cities. I think maybe LA had two or three offices and New York had two or three offices. And then people who were much smaller than that were lucky to have one. I think Denver had one and like Kansas City maybe. You know, I mean, it was pretty sparse here in this part of the country. So most of it was done on the phone. We and then our sales department would have teams that we were associated with that people would call in, they'd talk to them, uncover assets, send them up to us. And our job was to roll it in and uh, talk to those people and help them get their money consolidated. So that was a fun job. I enjoyed it. Uh, it's fun to be downtown in a tall building and made a lot of friends there, met a lot of good people and uh, had a good time with that. But that was another call center environment. And after a while, I couldn't do it anymore. Okay. And how long did you stay there? Oh, I was there for about six years, seven years. Wow. Okay. Let's take a break and hear a word from our sponsor. Here at Stahl Realty, you are number one. I'm a realtor with HomeSmart, and my job is to make sure you are satisfied. Here is what one satisfied client of Stahl Realty had to say. Rick Stahl was an awesome asset in helping our family find a home that checks all our boxes. He is patient and committed. I would recommend calling upon his services. One of my favorite mottos is making milestones memorable. Buying or selling a house can be overwhelming, but with my guidance and expertise, I can make this process as smooth as possible. I can be reached via email at stallrealty at gmail.com or text call me at 720-429-3303. I look forward to hearing from you. And now, back to our show. Good, then what? They left, and, and actually, that's when I got my start in real estate as an investor. Okay. I um, flipped my first house uh, and in 2013. So 20, see, it was 2013, and we sold it in 2014. Uh, and that was a that was a fun project, and that that sort of was a, a the beginning of a lot of things for me. Not just a matter of investment work and, and being party to investments, but also, um, <clears throat> excuse me, getting in on some of my hobbies that I have. I love woodworking and building things, and that all kind of came from the, the work I did in that house. So, yeah, tell us about it. How did you find it? What did you do with it? Well, this was out in Aurora. Uh, anybody who knows Denver, Aurora is in the southeastern uh, quadrant of the city, and uh, this was a, a Decent area was built in the seventies, but somebody had come along on this house and built an addition to it. So the house was like, I don't know, 40, 50% larger than anything else in the neighborhood. So the advice that I would give anyone out there who is looking to flip houses, the rule number one, I think is don't buy anything in a neighborhood that is vastly different than other things in the neighborhood. Cause yeah. the realtor, the realtor I was using at the time was a guy who, really was a sharp, he's a sharp guy. He's still in the business and he's a really smart person, knows his stuff. But uh, he was coming in and saying, we're going to get a number of dollars a square foot. I can't remember the number specifically. But that was more based on sales in the area. And when something is grossly different than everything else in the area, you're not going to find uh, that same price per square foot. So we were over in our estimates pretty dramatically. And uh, I was always uneasy about it, but that was the probably the fifth or sixth house that we put an offer in on. And <clears throat> as it turned out, we were the ninth contract on that, on that property. Everything just kept falling through. I wonder why. Well, I would assume that uh, because the property was in pretty bad shape, uh, there were a lot of probably FHA people who 
uh, couldn't qualify for the proper or whether the property would not qualify for, right? And then a lot of other people who maybe didn't think it was worth what they wanted it to be, you know, what they wanted to get out of it, that kind of thing. So we finally ended up picking it up. And uh, it was a it was a big project, but yeah, that was a that was interesting. Ninth contract. Yeah. So did you or first how did you finance it? Um, I had a partner at the time. He did a, a hard money loan. Hard money. Okay. And how much did you put in the rehab? Well, let's see here. You're asking me to get back in the deep recesses of my brain to try to find this information. I want to say we put about something just south of 70000 in it, maybe sixty eight, something like that. Okay. All right. And then, so did you do the work or hire it, or how did you handle the rehab? I hired a general contractor. Uh, nowadays, I'm even more proficient at things than I was back then, but there are still things I don't deal with. You know, I don't know how to, to uh, I can rewire a lot of things, but I'm not going to touch the electrical box. Uh, I'll do some basic plumbing, but I'm not tearing up floors and breaking out concrete to get to pipes and that kind of thing. And I wanted somebody there who could oversee a lot of the work and make sure that things were being done properly. Um, and so I hired him and then we hired some subs, but I did a lot of work. I, I did a lot of wiring work. I did a lot of, of flooring work. I laid laminate floor through most of it. And I did a lot of painting uh, and I took some walls out and built other walls. And, and I mean, it was, I did a, just about everything that a person, but uh, the contractor is much faster than I was. And uh, um, so the two of us working together, we, we made some good progress. Yeah, that's one thing I've learned is, you know, I, I like to help wherever I can, but the, I've, I was trying to help this handyman crew, uh, last year and they were moving like 10 times faster than I could move, you know, and, and it just at some point it's just let them do their job. <laughs> so that's what I finally, right. I, I'll try not to slow them down if anything. And sometimes getting out of the way is just a better, better thing to do, you know. So. Yeah, because, you know, your hard money interest is uh, accruing very fast here. So you got to get in and out as quickly as you can. Yeah. yeah. Well, the thing with this, the thing about this house is that the size of the house and I think some of the work that we wanted to do for it was uh, was just more than than really we should have taken on. So we had the hard money loan and it took us about six months to get through the process. So, you know, I mean, you don't want to hold on to a 14% loan on whatever it was, $180,000, something like that, for six months. I mean, right. it's, it's going to eat you alive. Right. But it needed siding. We did siding work. We did a new roof. We did gutted the whole basically main floor, put all kinds of new stuff in there. But interestingly, the house was owned, must have been by like a, I think they said he was either a chiropractor or physical therapist or something like that. Because uh, the house was a standard two-story. So you go in and, you know, you're on your right is the living room and you go to your left, there was a den and then up right up the stairs kind of on your left or immediately in front of you was a hallway, which went back into the kitchen. You went around through the living room and dining room. You could get into the kitchen that way. And the bathroom was just off that little hallway. And then there was a family room behind the garage off the kitchen there. So pretty standard two-story layout. And then upstairs was a master bedroom uh, and three additional bedrooms beyond that. So what they had done was built this addition on the back where the patio doors originally were, they took that door out and used that doorway. 
and built a nice big addition with a built-in entertainment area and another set of stairs that went up the back and then a separate entrance in the back as well. And you could tell there was a path and a gate and and concrete and that around the back of the house so people could get to that door back there. And uh, so upstairs, it was kind of partitioned off. There were five, like four or five little rooms up there and a little waiting area. You'd get up to the top of the stairs and there was this landing and like three doors that came off of that. So that was interesting. And then one of those rooms uh, had a, another door in it that went into the bathroom upstairs. So the only way to get from the addition upstairs into the existing or the initial part of the home, original part of the home, was to go through the bathroom. There was oh, room. boy. So it was a really awkward and weird uh, kind of setup. But like I said, if, you, if you're a chiropractor or a physical therapist or somebody who's working out of their house and you've got two or three patients in there at a time, well, probably a pretty nice setup. So we tore all of that out of there, all of those walls and doors and all that garbage out of there, put a bathroom in and made a big, beautiful master suite back there. Because we thought in that part of town, there's a lot of, of different like minority people, different different cultures and that. And so a lot of people who come from cultures where there's multiple generations living at home, right? So we thought you got grandparents, you got parents, you got kids, three generations at home. There might be you know, eight or 10 people there. So we have two master, master suite kind of areas, we have bedrooms for people, we've got a good sized living area. Uh, and we thought we were going to do great on the house, but it honestly had very little interest. So what did you do? So you listed it? Did it sell right away? No, didn't. We, we were just confounded. And it, it kind of came down to the idea that I think the realtor had overstated how much we were going to be able to get for it. And uh, we listed it, and it just kept drive, dropping the price down until we got finally started getting some bites. And we found where kind of the, the sweet spot for the property was. Certainly higher than anything else in the neighborhood. <clears throat> it was much nicer than anything else in the neighborhood. We just finished you know updating it. But it was also much bigger. And so price per square foot was probably 6% of what you got with the rest of the neighborhood. But it was 50% bigger. So, you know, we had a, a slight margin in there above everybody else, but but not dramatic. So did you end up making money or losing money? <clears throat> well, I pretty much broke even on it. Yeah. Once you take the realtor fees out and closing costs and, you know, the hard money uh, loan interest, it really adds up. It really does. It really does. So that was uh, that was an interesting experience. It was a lot of fun. It was a lot more than just money involved in something like that, right? So uh, I learned how to do a lot of different stuff in that house, and I have applied that to my own home. And uh, you know, my wife and I have been here for seventeen years, and I've done an awful lot of work on it, and uh, saved us an awful lot of money because I was able to do that. Yep. Yep. Okay. So then. Uh... Where, where are we at here? We you left uh, TI uh, Press, yeah. And, left TI do, Press. and what else? Now, what are you doing? You're, you're not just fixing and flipping houses. What are you doing for a day job? Well, I'm doing a lot of things these days, Rick. I've got several uh, several pots on the stove, I guess you could say. Um, I do some financial uh, work for people as a personal financial representative, so. I can help that way. I also have my real estate business that I'm, I'm building. And, uh, years, several years ago, I developed an idea or started developing an idea where you take your portfolio of assets and combine it with your real estate assets and then 
use that personal personal information to analyze real estate to make sure that it's an investment for you. So I've been taking some time here recently to develop that further, and uh, uh, that's something that I hope to have done here in the next few months and then be able to either offer as an app or, you know, a software suite, something like that. But that's kind of my pet project right now. Oh, that sounds like it'll keep you busy. Yeah, it certainly has been. I'm, I'm anxious to get it done. It's been something in the works for quite a lot, quite a while. Let me ask you a couple other questions here. So I know you're a man of faith. So how has that uh, affected your career uh, as you went through these different jobs? I think uh, for the most part, being at a place like um, Charles Schwab or TIA Craft or even Bank One, uh, it only, I mean, it certainly provides you with solid guiding principles in the way that you approach other people and, and that. But I'm not sure that those guiding principles are so much different in those areas than they are just in your general life. But I think as a an advisor and a person who helps people with money and and really is for that trusted individual where people are really putting themselves out there and, and they need honest guidance, I think that that uh, you know, really being a, a man of faith and a man of God puts me in a position to to be very diligent about being honest and upfront with people and making sure that they're comfortable with what we're doing and what I'm doing for them and, and how I'm going to help them. So I think that really is a big part of it. I always used to tell people that uh, I don't, I don't always eat real well, but I always sleep very well. That's <laughs> good. Kind of my, yeah. <laughs> people ask me about these kinds of things. And then it got to a point where now I do both. I eat really well, maybe a little too well, you know, <laughs> and uh, I also sleep really well. So I, I, I will not under any circumstances take a client for a ride. That's just not who I am. I would much rather tell somebody to go somewhere else. There's a better product for you. There's a better place for you than for me to, to do something that I feel is not perfectly right for them. Perfect. All right. So where do you see yourself in the next five years or what, what's next on the horizon for Doug Kirstein? I have a business, Kirstein Properties, where I occasionally get into the real estate game. I'm not in it right now, but uh, I'm looking to expand and get into that a little bit more. How can the listeners help you? <laughs> can they help me? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I suppose if you're looking for somebody to partner on a deal with or something like that, you know, that's, Something that I could I could be a part of, but think, uh, you know, I'd like to think of myself as being here to help other people. Maybe if there's a synergistic relationship there uh, that could be built, that would be something I'd definitely be happy to chat with. Very good. And this is one question I've always wanted to ask uh, other different people because I've had different epiphanies in my life where where I've, something just finally clicked and it just just opened my brain up to the to what i'm trying to learn can you tell me one or two epiphanies in your life wow one or two epiphanies in my life so uh, just for example when i was uh finishing my first grade of electronics tech school i just could not figure out electronics i tried and tried and finally (laughs) we had to write a, a schematic out of a amplifier circuit and as i'm drawn memorized you know just drawn it out I realized that electrons just flow in a loop. And, and once I realized it's just a loop, I was like, oh, my gosh, we're just using these electrons to make them do what we want to do. And it was just that simple little thing I needed. And, and it just all of a sudden my grades just shot up. I started figuring it out. It was really 
it's kind of embarrassing that I didn't know that, but it, I needed that. And so I was just wondering along the way in life, have you ever had a, just a spot where you really just found the key? I think there's been several. I can point to them professionally. I can point to them educationally. I can point to them spiritually. In education, yeah, I can point out similar things to you. I remember being a freshman in college and taking a finance class and talking about valuing bonds and how a bond is trades and how the interest rate works and how, how the value of the bond is, is relative to or is dependent upon the relative interest rates in the market you know, as compared to the interest rate being offered by the bond. All this stuff seemed really complicated. And then one day my teacher sat down with me and he explained it to me and the light went off. And it's like, I get it. So I went from struggling to, to get things done to being the first guy done with a test and getting an A on the test, 100%. Right? So it went from, I, I have some understanding of this to I'm the master. You know, it was funny how that kind of worked. Just like you, some little thing, I'm sure, whatever it was, but it just connected everything. It was enough to fill that in and, and bridge the gaps there. So I think there's that. And then spiritually speaking, I think as a Christian person, when you have a, a when you have kind of that that degree of faith that says that whatever's happening here is not is just not permanent. It's all temporary, and so. When there are strife, when there's difficulty, when there's, you know, problems and stress and all this kind of thing. Uh, and I think you can say that stops with me. And instead of returning that type of behavior, you can be calm and you can be collected and you can kind of help people to, to get back on their feet and their bearings back about them and move in the right direction again. And I think that's helped me be a better, uh, you know, a better communicator. It's helped me become a better advisor, a better friend, a better everything really a better man in general, because I can see that people are saying things and doing things that are not necessarily something that I need to react to, but instead I need to act toward them the way that I know that is appropriate. Right. So it's probably the most important epiphany in my life. Very good. Okay. Um, So this is secret sauce for success show. What are your secrets for success? I think, I think patience, uh, and tenacity. People will tell me that I'm the most tenacious person that they've ever met. Very good. You know, I, I'm, I'm that guy that I just am, I start doing something and I don't quit. It's part of my problem though. I, I have so many hobbies because I take them up because I enjoy them and then I can't stop doing them. You know, I also start a TV show on Netflix and if I hate it, I still have to watch all the first season. <laughs> Maybe that's maybe that's not so healthy, but <laughs> no tenacity. That never give up. You know that's the that's a big one. Yeah, really, it is. So I think tenacity and education. I read. I probably read. Oh, I don't read a ton. Maybe an hour a day. That's a ton well, compared to me. Well, and that's a ton compared to the way I used to be as well. As I've gotten older, I've gotten to a point where I really enjoy reading more, but now I'm, I'm choosing more books that, that I can apply. Uh, and even as a young man, I didn't particularly enjoy reading, but I would actually read like the textbooks I had for school and I would enjoy reading that because I could take the information out of it and I'd think, okay, I, I really, I understand this. This makes sense to me now. And uh, 
for that, I like to read because I like knowledge. I like understanding things. And we've been talking a lot lately about some of the things that we talked about in our last interview you know, with Kira and some of the things that she said, and then talking about some of the things going on in the market today. And, you know, my finance education and the, the reading and all that that I've done has really helped me to, to be able to follow that and understand it and, and, you know, help explain some of those areas where, you know, you as an engineer didn't have that education. So I can help you see some of those things as well. Okay. So what's your favorite real estate book? Oh, my favorite real estate book. Well, you know, I don't know that I have a favorite real estate book. Um, business in general and economics, that's kind of where I have uh, focused most of my reading. Okay. So what's your favorite business book? Favorite business book or, well, or investment book? I think I've recently read The Magic of Thinking Big, and I thought that was really well done. I enjoyed that. Hmm. Let's see. I also – I'm trying to think of some of these – it's been a long time since I've read some of these, but uh, there's there's um, Dale Carnegie. That's another another couple of great books. How to Win Friends and Influence People. It's huge. If people don't like you, they're not going to work with you. <clears throat> exactly. Dave Tippergan, I think, was the one who said he liked that book. I think that was him. Was that? Yeah. Yeah. So uh, I think that was uh, that. That's another good one. If you're looking to get a little more technical and into economics and that, there's a fellow named George Gilder who wrote a book called Wealth and Poverty. It's one of my favorite books. I've probably read it, I don't know, four or five times now. Uh, it's not an easy read. It's really, it's thick. I mean, I don't mean like it's a big book. It's just thick. So that's why I've read it so many times. And every time I read it, I pull new information out of it. Huh. Yeah, that must be a good book to read over like that. No, it's it's definitely up my alley. I, I like that kind of thing. I think a lot of people would pick it up and say, this is absolutely terrible. The only thing it's good for is kindling. But uh, I think it's, uh, you know, I think it's really chock full of great little tidbits and things that uh, as I read it, you know, like I say, I've read it, read it several times and I always pull something out of it. That might even be just a matter of context, whatever's going on in the world and whatever kinds of things are on my mind. So, Okay. So where can listeners get a hold of you? Well, um, they could call my cell phone. That's uh, 303-638-7245. I'd be glad to chat with them about any number of different things, real estate investment or, you know, whatever else is on their mind. And uh, I can talk about how maybe I can help them. And, and uh, so that's a good place to get hold of me. Okay. Very good. Well, hopefully this interview, you know, provided some insight into – who, who Doug Kirstein is that's interviewing all these guests. Uh, I think he gave a good overview of finance and uh, economics, uh, some real estate. Uh, yeah, you, I think you covered it all. So thanks so much, Doug, for being on the show, uh, on the hot seat this time. Bet you into my schedule, Rick, but I could do it. I was glad to do it for you. <laughs> Well, Doug, you always take us out of the interview, so can you take us out of here? Yeah, well, thanks for, for having me on as a guest. I appreciate that. It's uh, something new for me. I don't know that I've ever been interviewed in a professional setting before, so I appreciate that. And I hope everybody found it interesting. Uh, we all have our own strengths and, and weaknesses in that, and, and I've tried a lot of different things. So hopefully people out there will say, you know what, this guy can do a lot of different things and has done a lot of different things, and maybe that will be inspiring. So. 
you know, let's, let's do something. Give me a call if I can help you, if I can do something and we'll get away from the lack of money and, and the root of, of potential evil in our lives, right? Very good. Uh, great. Well, thanks again, Rick. And everybody, thanks for listening. Have a great evening and we'll see you on the next show. Thank you for listening to the Secret Sauce for Success show, where we find the secret ingredients for success. We all want to be successful in life. So let's break down the steps it takes to get there and learn from other people's journeys. We hope that through the stories you hear on our show, you will find success in your life.